Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run a website called Production Advice, aimed at helping you get the best results out of recording, mixing, and mastering your music. With me this week is John Tidy from reaperblog.net. And if you've been paying attention and listening to other episodes, you'll know that John has actually been mixing and editing the show for, all oh, the last many episodes anyway. Mm-hmm. So thank you, John. You do a great job on that. Really appreciate that. Um, and I was trying to think of how I could introduce you. And I think maybe the most significant thing I could say about you is that, you know, if there are people out there who, you know, people who've been following me for a while, either online or on the, the podcast, will know that I'm not averse to the odd kind of clickbaity headline. Taylor Swift is louder than ACDC, Metallica and the Sex Pistols. Wait, what? And, that, you know, the whole, the whole wait what bit at the end is just kind of, you know, and I don't actually do the, if you watch this video, you're going to cry, but wait until the third minute. I don't go that far down, but you're kind of like, you'll have nothing to do with that. And I kind of feel like that's admirable that you stand up for your, uh, for your principles. And, you know, I mean, the, the Reaper blog and I mean, you've got a ton of sites, but they're all offering real solid, actionable, great information with no BS. So uh, I doff my hat to you, sir. Well, thank you. It's good to be on the show. I mean, you've asked me a couple of times and I said no, but uh, I'm here for the, uh, oh, you haven't announced what the name of this episode is yet. Well, no. And that's the other thing, isn't it? Is that I have to apologize to you for making you, well, I didn't make you come on this episode, but like, so anybody who's been listening to the show f- for a while knows that I've kind of been putting off the episode on Dither. Um, and that's what this one is. Actually, it's about more than just dither. It's a lot more interesting than just dither. So don't switch off. Don't adjust your set if if the kind of the thought of talking about digital hiss um, is not interesting to you. But John uh, is probably the person who has been most passionate about not wanting me to do an episode <laughs> about dither. So I, much so that he created a meme to, so that so that I could like stop answering questions about dither and just post this image instead, which just said, just dither it. Um, yeah. So, John, I'm really sorry that you've ended up <laughs> being on the episode about dither. That's just kind of too cruel. Yes, I'm aware of the irony and I accept it. <laughs> okay, so let me start then by... I'm going to tell everybody what Dither is in a minute and why it matters. But let's start with, I mean, why do you not want an episode on Dither? What's your take on it? Is it is it that you kind of don't understand it and don't really want to? Or is it you understand it and it's just intrinsically dull? What's your take on it? I think it's uninteresting. I think once you, once you learn it, um, like you say, just apply it. It doesn't hurt to add it. There's more problems with not having it. So basically, it's it's not even something I think about. So why am I here? Uh, that's, well, okay. And that's absolutely fair enough. And I, I'm almost, I'm kind of glad you said it because actually that's my point of view as well. If what I would say to people listening to this is that if, if we get 10 minutes in and you're kind of thinking, why am I listening to this? Please stop and go and listen to one of the other episodes. It's more exciting. You know, the interview with, with Sylvia or Steve or, you know, the one on distortion or loudness or whatever it is. Because yeah, at the end of the day, Dither is just a technical aspect of digital audio recording it's something that you need to use um and if you do that you can't really go wrong like john just said it's i can't think of a reason it would have a negative effect and yeah it's the right thing to do so 
If you don't want to listen to an episode on dither, you can stop now. You have my permission. But if you do, I'm going to start off by giving the hand-wavy explanation of what dither is. Um, and that's a joke which I'm going to have to explain to everybody. Uh, it's hand-wavy for a reason that's going to become apparent in a minute. But it's also hand-wavy because that's what my physics lecturer back when I was in college would say somewhat contemptuously of, you know, kind of non-scientific descriptions of stuff. He's absolutely right. When people start saying something that is kind of technically inaccurate or, you know, it's an analogy or misleading, they almost always start kind of just waving their hands around in the air a bit, vaguely, you know, not really signifying anything. I'm doing it now. So <laughs> this is the hand-wavy explanation of dither, um, which... So I want everybody listening to this to put their hand up with their fingers spread out in front of their face. Uh, put your hand in front of something that has a little bit of detail in it. There's a lava lamp on the windowsill in front of me that I can see. So it's pretty much blocked out by one of my fingers. What we're doing by that is we're splitting what we can see into slices. And if you know anything about digital audio, you'll know that basically that means you are sampling what you can see. You've chosen discrete points at which you want to measure what you can see, which is the spaces between your fingers, and then you're ignoring the rest, where you're blocking out what you can see where the fingers are. And that's exactly what happens in digital audio. You take the waveform the, in the voltage in the wire, and you measure it at specific points, separated by distinct periods of time, which is the sample rate, and you record those, and that's your record of the audio signal. And of course, there's a problem, because just like the fingers in your hand are blocking out some of the image, you miss out some of the data in the waveform when you sample it. And that is quantization error. So quantization is the process of assigning a value to something. Uh, in the case of audio, you know, it's how big is the voltage. And you just have to, at some point, you have to make a decision, you know, is this 10 or 11 or 12 or 13? And you set a value. And just like we're, you know, you put your hand up, you look through your fingers, you can see through. Some of the information is lost. Now, though, I want people to start gently waving the hand left to right, as though you're kind of doing a very small, rapid wave to someone in the distance. Suddenly, what you can see changes. Um, I've realized that I have closed one eye. You might want to close one eye so you can see what I'm talking about. Suddenly, I can see the lava lamp. It kind of feels like I can see it through my hand. Of course, I can't see it through my hand. What's happening is, as my hand moves left and right, the fingers sometimes block out the lava lamp, and sometimes they don't. And that is the analogy for dither, because what we're doing is we're adding noise to the sampling process. Rather than holding the hand steady, we're moving the hand around. That's introducing noise into the sampling system. And the noise makes the sample worse, but also it improves it, because suddenly we're not losing the information. You can see everything on the other side of your hand if you wave rapidly enough, just with some extra noise. Now you're probably kind of following this through and thinking, okay, well, if dither is adding noise to the sampling process in digital audio, I mean, okay, we're, you know, you're, you're improving what you can see in terms of you're reducing the quantization error, but you've added loads of noise. But of course, this is a, a really crude example. You know, we have, there are four spaces between your fingers and your thumb. So effectively, you've got a, a four-bit signal there, and you can probably only move your hand maybe two or three times a second. So that's a really low sampling rate um, with this analogy. 
in digital audio, of course, you know, 8-bit would be a really low bit rate. 4-bit audio, I think, would probably be pretty much useless unless you want to use it for an effect. And actually, typically, we use 16-bit or higher. So either you're going to have to imagine a hand with, like, lots of fingers, or maybe it's better to imagine uh, kind of thin bars in a grid that you hold up so that you have lots of much smaller slices. And if you think about that, the key point about that is you can add a lot less noise. You only have to vibrate those uh, that, that kind of grid that's obscuring what you can see quite a small amount in order to introduce enough noise into the system that you can reduce the quantization error so that you can see the bits in the gaps. And of course the other thing is that the sampling rate in audio is typically, well I mean, you know, 16 kilohertz would be a really low sampling rate. CD is 44 kilohertz. So if we could take our 17-fingered hand and wobble it around at 44,000 times per second, I think then you can see that the amount of noise that would be introduced into the signal would probably be small enough that it really wouldn't matter. And that's the situation with digital audio, and that's exactly how it works. So, John, do you have any questions about my hand-wavy analogy? I think this is a weird analogy. Um, <laughs> okay. And it's not how I've thought about dither in the past, um, but I'll, I'll let you go with it. I'll let you continue. Okay. Well, it's it's not a perfect analogy, but it's pretty good. It definitely conveys the idea, you know, the idea that you can solve the problem of quantization, bits of missing data, by adding noise to the sampling process. Because that's what dither does. So dither is just... Can we, can we talk about what is that missing information? Is that frequency content? Is that dynamic range? Or, you know, the differences in volume levels? Uh, is it timing errors or anything like that? So what's happening between the samples that we're missing? It's not so much about what's happening in between the samples that we're missing, it's the problems that you have when you miss them. This is hard to explain in words, but I do have a video um, where I demonstrate it, so we could put that in the show notes at themasteringshow.com and people could check it out. Yeah, um, and this, this is also kind of one of those classic myths of digital, digital audio where it's a stair step, where we see a, a bar graph rather than discrete, like a uh, lollipop graph for, the, uh, for what audio is. Exactly. And that's something that I talked about quite a bit in episode nine, the analog versus digital episode. So I'm not going to go into a huge thing about that now because Steve and I talked about it for at least 20 minutes. Um, so anybody who wants to kind of dive into that particular rabbit hole can, can go there. But you're absolutely right. And that's why this episode is not only about dither, it's also about resolution because actually the idea of talking about the resolution of a, a digital signal doesn't really make any sense and I'm going to talk about that more in a bit. I haven't said clearly what dither is yet. Dither is just noise. It's white noise, it's hiss and it's very low level because just like with the, the very fine grid you don't have to uh, add very much noise in order to be able to see a better image. You don't have to add very much noise. In fact you just have to add enough noise to keep the least significant bit of the system toggling on and off, right? Because the problem with quantization distortion is when the signal is very, very quiet, let's imagine that uh, the, the end of a reverb tail, that's the classic example, the signal is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, you have, you're, you're not using 16 bits, you're maybe only using one bit, and that final bit, it, the system, the sampling system has to decide at some stage, is that bit supposed to be on or off? Um, and you, I mean, lots of people, if you ever heard 8-bit, digital without dither 
what happens when you hear a reverb tail is it kind of goes and then it stops because you hear that last bit kind of flicking on and off and then it stops if you add dither which is this white noise very low level to the signal um you don't hear that what you hear is the reverb tail decay and die away beautifully and smoothly but there's hiss added in and in an 8-bit signal um, the noise caused by randomizing that least significant bit in the digital signal is quite loud in comparison to the audio um, so it's very noticeable noise in 16-bit audio you know that noise is down at minus 96 dbs or something so providing your signal levels are pretty good that's not going to be too much of an issue and the reason I kind of went on that little tangent there is because the next thing I was going to say was if there's enough noise in the random noise in the input signal to begin with, you don't necessarily have to add any extra dither. So, uh, you know, with a 24-bit converter, um, the chances are the thermal and electronic noise in any analog signal that you put into an analog to digital converter is going to be enough to, in inverted quotes, self-dither the signal. And and what about microphone self noise or the room noise of the environment that you're recording? That is usually much higher than the converter's noise. Is that correct? Yes, and so that is almost always going to be enough that you don't actually have to apply any dither when you're recording. Um, and and I'm sure the converters already do that for us if it was required, right? You would hope. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I think yes in any decently designed piece of gear um, but there have definitely been converters in the past that didn't do that and especially when those were 16-bit or even kind of 14-bit converters that was a problem and as I mentioned in the analog versus digital episode maybe that's one of the reasons that people were so negative about early implementations of digital technologies right talking you know, about the, the earliest samplers exactly yeah I, I'm, I'm sure my Casio SK-1 doesn't have a decent uh, set of dither that's quite <laughs> possible how, how many bits does it record at oh i have no idea probably eight maybe even less yeah. well lots of 8-bit samplers didn't have it and that's one of the things that lots of people love about the sound of 8-bit samplers is all this crunchy stuff they also didn't yeah. have anti-aliasing filters and all the rest of it so yeah i mean in terms of kind of creative musical effects but but in terms of sheer technical specifications if you're doing mastering you should understand it and properly apply dither Exactly. You're usually not going for an 8-bit sound. Usually not. <laughs> In fact, I don't think I've ever gone for an 8-bit sound. I, I, th uh, I no. think for um, telephone systems, you need to be careful with dither and quantization noise and all that kind of stuff. Where um, pre-recorded messages for, for answering machines and that kind of stuff, which is still a, somewhat common. They are. And, and the other place you, you can hear undithered non-anti-alias digital audio is in those you know the the um the greetings cards where you open them up and it plays you some hideous tune you know yep. and kid, kids toys all of those they have the cheapest possible chips in and you don't have it and you have that kind of wildly distorted sound now one interesting thing i'll come back to this as well is that you can actually get decent results even from 8-bit audio um and that's using some of the fancier varieties of dither that we'll talk about later um Gourmet dither. Gourmet dither, yes. <laughs> a la carte dither. Bespoke. Bespoke, there it is. Oh, wait a minute. Artisanal dither. Yes. <laughs> Which you can only use if you have a, if you have a, a hipster beard. Yeah. So, um, so stay tuned for the end to the link to Ian's artisanal uh, dither yeah. that you can download. 
I mean, there really are people doing that, sadly. Anyway, um, so you need to be careful with the... I mean, you hope that the equipment is well-designed um, and that if it needs dither, it has it. At 24 bits, there's so much uh, dynamic range there that it's hard to imagine uh, a converter or a mic or a room or an amp that doesn't have enough um, noise in it to to adequately dither the converter. But so getting back to my example, which is maybe what made me go off on that tangent, um, if we think about recording a sine wave, let's not think about recording a sine wave. Let's think about a sine wave that you've generated digitally in a 32-bit floating point because you have a modern DAW, and now you want to export that at 16-bit. Because you are reducing the number of bits that are available, there is a quantization decision to be made by the conversion process at going down from 32-bit floating point to 16 bits. So you should apply dither. What you get is your original digital sine wave with a tiny little bit of noise, which is the dither noise. Nothing else. That's all fine. If you don't apply the dither, you get the sine wave back out, but you also get a bunch of what's called enharmonic distortion, which basically means little kind of harmonic spikes in the signal, but they're not uh, the kind of harmonics we get in musical notes because they have nothing to do with, you know, a real-world natural system. Uh, they are purely a byproduct of the quantization distortion. And as I say, there's a, there's a video on the website where people can kind of see and hear that. Um, and that it might be a reasonable time to mention another reason why you should use dither. It's because, technically speaking, you, by applying dither, you are changing the kind of distortion that you have. So people might remember from the episode on distortion that I was saying that technically anything that changes the input signal is a distortion. So I've been talking about quantization distortion. Actually, the hiss is also a distortion, technically speaking. But there's a huge difference between hiss and enharmonic distortion caused by quantization errors or truncation errors in the signal, which is that hiss is something that is completely natural. We hear hiss out in the world wherever we are. I mean, we hear it as soon as we turn on any piece of audio gear, there is going to be some kind of noise in that system, thermal noise, self-noise of the electronic components. Um, you know, tape has loads of hiss. I've said this before. Hiss is our friend. So many of our favourite recordings are absolutely bathed in hiss, whereas the distortion harmonics that are created by quantization distortion, they're very, very quiet, but they're completely unnatural. They're a purely digital artifact. They have no comparison in the real world. Uh, you know, tubes and transistors introduce odd and even harmonics, and we find them pleasing, and people do it deliberately because it's an interesting effect in the sound. People use digital stuff as well, but I don't think anybody would say that it's a natural or... Uh, I don't think, for me, there's nothing pleasant about it. And I think if you go and check out the video and have a listen, you'll hear that for yourself. And the I think the really key thing to say is that, of course, we're talking about this theoretical example of a sine wave. Real music is not made up of single sine waves, except that actually it is, because every single note is a fundamental plus a load of harmonics. Every one of those is a sine wave. And every one of those is getting distorted in the same way by the quantization process that happens when you reduce the bit depth. So 
another reason for using dither is, I mean, you know, strictly speaking, we're just turning one kind of distortion, which is quantization distortion, into another kind of distortion, which is hiss. But hiss is a, you know, a lovely analog sounding type of distortion and quantization distortion is the exact opposite. And again, I wonder whether that's one of the reasons that people didn't like the sound of early digital gear, is that if it didn't have properly implemented dither, it would be adding all of these subtle kind of gritty, grainy, edgy artifacts to the sound and giving you all of those kind of things that people used to complain about in terms of digital sounding cold and metallic and all the rest of it. So we've been talking about doing this to the theoretical crystal clear, perfect sine wave. What is this actually like in the real world when we're mastering music? Can we actually hear the quantization errors if we don't dither? Okay, and that's a really controversial question. Um, I've had huge arguments with people about this. The completely honest answer is I don't really know. I think I know, and I'm going to tell you why I think I know, but I haven't redone the test that persuaded me. Lots of people listening to this know about Bob Katz. He's a really famous uh, mastering engineer. He's written a book on mastering, and he certainly believes that uh, dither is a really important thing to take into consideration. And there are some other reasons for that, which, again, we can talk about in a minute. But uh, I was talking to Bob on internet forums back in, I don't know, year 2000 at least. Um, and I used to think, actually, I used to be skeptical. I was kind of like, really? The musical signal is so much louder. Can we really hear this stuff? Uh, so I was definitely skeptical with my kind of uh, scientist head on. And then I mastered an album of Hammond organ music by Billy Preston, who is, I think he's the guy who played on Get Back. Anyway, he's a great Hammond player. Uh, it was a really kind of, I loved it. You know, it was it was kind of, I think it was the it was early 60s, this stuff. And it came in, it was in mono. It was on 15 IPS analog reel with no noise reduction. So stacks of hiss, um, you know, and it's a Hammond organ. It's not a particularly dynamic, it's, it's quite loud most of the time, um, depending on how many notes you're playing uh, and where the pedals are. So... The last thing in the world that if you'd asked me, I would have expected to make any difference. And I got about halfway through the album and I suddenly realised that I actually had been listening with Dither switched off. And I kind of stopped and I thought, oh, am I going to have to go back and redo? Because I was recording out from the DAW. I'd recorded the, the tapes into the DAW. Then I was playing out through a load of kit and recording it back in. There was no nonlinear processing on the system that I was using at that point. And part of me was like, I just want to carry on and get this job finished. And the other part of me was like, well, I need to do a test. So uh, I broke out the um, legendary three-fingered mouse click. I can't remember which episode it was where I talked about that, but it's basically you use three fingers on a mouse to randomize the clicking so that something is on or off and you, you don't look at the screen. You have no idea where it's on or off. It's a kind of real poor man's A-B blind test. And I did a bunch of tests and I discovered that, yes, I could hear whether or not dither was on with this signal, with this, you know, it had noise down at minus 60, so 20 or 30 dBs higher than the theoretical noise floor of 16-bit digital um, on this kind of really old recording, this really loud, uh, as in, you know, not much kind of subtlety to the, to the sound. You know, it's Hammond organ kind of playing quite rocky stuff. And I could hear two thirds of the time. And I, I still believe that if I kind of 
more care and attention, I would get better at that success rate. I could hear whether the dither was on or off with this recording. So I had to go back and I remastered the half of the album that I'd already done using dither this time. And from that point on, I had a lot more respect for what Bob Katz was saying. Now, does that mean that dither actually is audible? No. It means that on that day, I did, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe 20 trials. And it seemed to me that I could hear whether this was on or off. I don't have that recording anymore, so I haven't repeated the test. I've tried to, people are always asking me for an example so they can hear for themselves. Because, you know, this was not an example of listening to subtle reverb tales or stuff. I could hear whether this was on in the middle of the song when he was going full tilt. Um, which, I don't know, does, are you skeptical about that? I am a little, um, I don't, when I export files out of the DAW to be used again inside the DAW, I usually don't apply dither just because it's an extra step in. 24-bit or 16-bit? Or 24-bit. See, I mean, there's another issue, the 24-bit, the, the because... The, I'm using a 64-bit DAW, so sh I should be using some dither. But it would be such low level that it probably doesn't matter, right? And I haven't done that test. I haven't done the 24-bit dither test. I suspect at 24-bit levels, it really is so low level that you, you won't be able to hear it. Because, you know, even in this example, I'm telling this story about, I'm not going to say that it was night and day. You know, I mean, two out mm -hmm. of three times is not a huge success rate. It's enough to persuade me that I was hearing something real. I don't even know if it would stand up if you ran it through the statistical analysis for A-B comparisons, you know? I have tested different dithers, and I believe it was the noise shaping where I heard a difference, where my master came out a little bit brighter with some of the uh, isotopes stuff. Now that's that's really interesting. And, and you're talking about it 16-bit, yeah? Uh, yeah, that would be a CD master um, going from, an, it was a 96K 24-bit recording. We exported 44.1 16-bit. We tried a few different um, dither options and stuff. The guy I was working with was very skeptical about the whole resolution and everything and losing quality and, and all this stuff. And we, we did A-B comparisons and, you know, I was testing things and, you know, comparing the exported files to the live mix and they were nearly identical, which you would think that when you're going from 96K down to a 44.1 file, going from a 64-bit mix bus down to a 16-bit file, you're going to lose a lot. But when I was using the dither, there was almost no difference. I was losing very, very little. There's two really interesting things about that. Uh, the first one is you talking about the different types of dither, and let's put that one off and talk about it yep. in more detail in, in a little while. Um, but the other one that is I, something I intended to say right at the beginning of this, um, which is another reason that I agree with you about the whole topic of dither and why I think it would be okay for people not to listen to this episode is that, yeah, we are talking about tiny little differences. You know, um, if I get hold of that Billy Preston CD and can do my test again, even if I prove to myself that, yes, I really was hearing something, you know, now I have A-B testing utilities, I can do a proper test, I can go wild on the statistical analysis and all the rest of it, even if that shows that I'm hearing a real thing, I'm not going to tell you it's a night and day difference. You know, it's moving the mic half an inch would have made a bigger difference. Changing the mic pre would have made a bigger difference. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, just a fraction of a dB of EQ here or there or else would have made a bigger difference. Except this is where you get back to the whole natural versus unnatural thing. Those would all be musical 
changes. Those would all be musical, yeah. aesthetic decisions. This is just a technical fault, right? It's something, by not applying dither, it's something that we should have done to the signal, and we haven't. So, and that's why I tell people, even at 24-bit, why not apply dither? You know, the, the, the kind of the, the processing, the computational aspects of it are negligible. In most DAWs, it's just an option you turn on and you leave it and you're good to go. And you're not going to be accidentally degrading the signal and you don't have to worry about whether or not it's audible. You know, maybe it's more audible on some kinds of signals than on others or some systems than others. Maybe some people will be more sensitive to it than others. You know, none of that stuff matters. You just kind of, you go tick that box, boom, I can carry on. And so... Yeah, that's another reason why I completely agree with with your point of view. To be honest, um, well, I got it from you. Okay, there you go. Well, that's, <laughs> that makes perfect sense. I, listening to listening to this show long enough, I, I, uh, you know, and to, and just talking to you like over the years, yeah, it just absolutely, dither is is a non-issue. Uh, one one thing that does come to mind is make sure that's the last part of your processing chain, or it's it's an option in the render uh, process, not something you put on the individual file where it's before your compression and things like that, where you're boosting the level and it's no longer doing its job. That's a good point. That's um, just throwing that out there. Cause you know, if you don't know now, you know, yeah, exactly. Or pretty much every modern DAW is 32 bit floating point. If you're working in 32 bit floating point, you don't need to dither because the floating point aspect of it will retain all of that extra low-level information you're not going to get any problems so yeah you just need to export it at the end the rule that i usually say is only dither if you are exporting to a fixed point format which means 16-bit or 24-bit uh or 8-bit um yeah in those situations i would and and that could include you know uh rendering or consolidating or bouncing tracks I, I can never remember the, the rules that Pro Tools uses for when it does and doesn't automatically apply dither are terrifyingly complex, and I, I just can't remember them. Um, there are people who understand them, but so, you know, that's why I kind of come down with my always add dither, because, you know, the honest answer is even if you exported something 10, 20, 50 times... Adding dither every adding time. Adding dither yeah. every time. The dither noise, especially at 24-bit, is going to be so low that it's still insignificant. So it's unlikely to do any harm. But having said that, you don't have to. If you're staying inside the DAW the whole time, you're good. If you're going out through analog gear at any point, you probably don't need to apply dither again because you're gonna introduce some more random noise into the signal, which is fine. Um, okay, here's, here's, a, here's a really nerdy point. This is something that I struggled with myself. The noise that is doing the dithering, be it dither or analog noise, has to be random right? The whole point about quantization error is that they are errors that are correlated with the audio input, which means that as the audio input changes, the quantization distortion changes in line with it, right? So you might get more of it in a loud section or it, it, it relates to the musical content. Whereas random noise, random hiss has nothing to do with the, uh, the musical signal. And that's why it removes the quantization distortion because it randomizes the, the lowest bits in the signal. So you don't get these errors that relate to the music signal. What that means is that even if you have a signal that has enough hiss in it to begin with and you record it, once it's recorded, if you then truncate it again, reduce the bit depth again, let's say you recorded an analog tape 
at 24-bit and then you played it out at 16-bit, you might think there's enough analog noise in that signal to self-dither the signal when you play it out to 16. But at the point where you recorded it into a digital file, the way that I like to think of it is that the noise kind of got frozen into the signal, right? It's no longer random noise. It's random noise that's part of the musical signal. And at suddenly at that point, you'll start getting quantization distortion again. So we might have to edit this out because it's so rambling and confusing. <laughs> and nobody I was just going to mention that this is my favorite topic again. I hope our audience hasn't crashed their cars by now. You mean just as a way of kind of ex escaping from it? Yeah. <laughs> That's how you're feeling, right? That's cool. Maybe this is just the continuation of your terrible day yesterday. Sure. Um, okay, so if we left that in the edit, then to summarize, bottom line is you want to dither at the end of the chain when you save it out to a file that is 24-bit or 16-bit. If it's a 32-bit I am floating so sorry file, I mentioned that. It can carry on. Well... In that case, we'll edit it out and nobody will ever know. No, it'll probably stay in. So there's one last thing that I want to say about the way that Dither works, uh, which is just kind of a little bugbear of mine. When I hear people explaining how it works, a lot of them say that it smooths in the jagged edges in the waveform. You know, we talked earlier about how there are no stair steps in digital waveforms. It doesn't smooth them in. It literally stops them being an issue it removes them from the equation if you just think back to the analogy of of the hand if you hold your hand still and it's blocking out some information like if i hold my hand so that it completely blocks out the lava lamp it's not like i can draw some kind of smoothing curve in between the gaps and somehow figure out that there was a lava lamp there before my hand was in the way if i move the hand backwards and forwards the noise i'm introducing is literally getting more information into the digital system and i can actually see the lava lamp. So it's not that the jagged edges in the waveform are somehow being smoothed over. It's that they are actually not there, um, which is why it doesn't really make any sense to talk about resolution in a digital system. If you apply dither, the only restriction, the only two restrictions on the quality of that signal are the sample frequency and the noise floor. If you want a lower noise floor, you throw more bits at it. If you want a higher frequency response, you just increase the sampling rate. And that brings me on to another annoying way that people talk about digital audio, which is to draw an analogy with a digital image, um, you know, a JPEG or something. And I mentioned this back in the uh, analog versus digital episode, but I just recap slightly. You know, the, 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 the argument goes, everybody understands if you zoom in on a digital image far enough, you're going to see the pixels, you're going to see the dots. And the way to get around that to get a better quality image is to increase the number of pixels. You buy a higher megapixel camera, you get higher quality images because the dots are smaller. And that's the explanation that is given uh, as to why you might want more bits in your digital audio system. Um, but it's wrong because, or the analogy is wrong. The analogy is really misleading because as we've seen, if you have dither in a digital audio system, you will never see the dots. You'll never see a jagged edge in the waveform, no matter how far you zoom in on, because the error has been changed into hiss, into noise. It's just a question of noise, not a question of seeing the pixels. A digital photo always has pixels. You know, a screen has pixels, even if it's a retina display on your, you know, iPod or a 4K display. If you zoom in far enough, you will eventually see 
the pixels. They are intrinsic and part of the digital image. So digital images really do have a literal resolution limit, which is to do with the number of points that you sampled. Digital audio doesn't have that. You know, again, I mentioned in the digital versus analog episode, if you took a properly dithered 8-bit signal, in fact, we'll talk in a minute about how to get better results from that 8-bit signal. If you took that signal and you looked at the waveform and you compared it with the same musical signal recorded in 16-bit, they would look identical. You could actually cancel them out with each other and they would null, and the only difference would be that the 8-bit signal has a higher noise floor. Yeah, those are just two little bugbears of mine. I, you see them over and over again, people repeating this thing of, oh, you need more bits in your digital audio signal, just like you need more pixels in your digital images. That's false. That's misleading. Um, and Dither doesn't smooth over the gaps. The gaps aren't there. There are no gaps in the recorded signal. That's the whole point of the sampling theorem that all of this stuff is based on. It says that you can reproduce the signal perfectly within the technical limitations of the signal, which are the frequency response and the noise floor. So. <laughs> yes. Are you still alive? I, I'm still alive. I, I am sick of that uh, analogy as well that, that I keep seeing. Not, not from what you just said. I mean, seeing comparisons of digital video or digital um, images compared to resolution, high sample rates and such. Excellent. I'm glad that I have scratched that itch for both of us. We've mentioned this a few times. Let's get back to the idea of different types of dither. So the simplest form of dither is literally just randomly turning the, the least significant bit of the signal on and off. That will create a white noise signal. It's called rectangular dither, and it's actually not good enough. Um, you will still get a certain amount of quantization distortion left in the signal. I don't understand why, I just know that that's the case. That's what people call type 1 dither. So if you see type 1 dither in a plugin, I wouldn't use it because it's not doing what you want. You want type 2 dither, which is also called triangular dither. It's a slightly more sophisticated way of randomizing that uh, least significant bit. It will completely remove any quantization distortion. And at 24-bit, that's what I would use. You know, don't worry about any of the other flavors of dither. Don't just, just straight type 2 triangular dither, 24-bit, you're good. Then there are all these other kind of flavors, the artisanal dither that we, that we mentioned earlier. So, you know, things like uh, Mbit Plus, UV22, POW-R dither. They all do various clever things. There are two clever things you can do with dither. One is that you can shape the dither. So if you listen to triangular dither, if you record a file with some triangular dither in it, or you make one at 8-bit, turn it up loud enough so you can hear it, it just sounds like white noise. Uh, I think it's white noise. It might be have a slightly different frequency content. So it might, anyway, just it's hiss. But imagine then applying a filter to that hiss so that you shift all of the sound energy from that you massively boost the high frequencies of that hiss and cut the frequencies in the most sensitive region of our ear because white noise has equal amplitude or frequencies. If you change the frequency response so there's less hiss where our ears are most sensitive, that kind of 2K range, you can make the dither noise less audible. Um, but still be effective. But still be effective. It will still remove all of the quantization distortion, but we hear less of it. The other thing that you can do is you can noise shape the errors. So noise shaping is not a type of dither, although you do have dithers that also use noise shaping, just to confuse things further. At this point, John has 
literally fallen asleep. <laughs> um, noise shaping moves the errors, the quantization errors, into the high frequencies so that the quantization error is still there, but we don't notice them as much because they're very high frequency. High frequency as in above 17K? Yeah, I think tip. I mean, it, it depends, right? This is where the different flavors of dither come in. You'll have some that mm -hmm. kind of have extreme noise shaping, um, but but fairly flat dither. You'll have some that have very shaped dither, um, but no noise shaping. Blah blah. You'll have some where you can switch different components on and off. Yeah, that's where the that's how people can kind of market different types of dither with a clear conscience. And I mean, the interesting thing is that you said. That's something that you'd heard. You'd heard subtle differences, even at 16-bit. I believe I heard something. It was an orchestral recording, and I don't know if it was the ultra or it was something boosting the highs in the dither from Ozone. It, it seemed like the instruments were a little bit brighter, or it, it kind of shaped the hiss that was already in the mix. And that's exactly the kind of effect that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what people hear when they when they choose different types of dither, that's why some mastering engineers spend a certain amount of time picking the ideal dither for... Oh, more than five seconds? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and this is where I'm going to kind of jump in and say, actually, I think all of that is another thing that actually, let's not worry about it. Um, the, yeah. But in order to not worry about it, you have to... Because there's no question, I think, that it does introduce subtle differences. I mean, one of my pet hates is UV22 dither. I, I just, whenever... I hear it, I don't like the effect that it has. Something about the way that it works just doesn't sound right to me. That's a completely subjective, non-AB tested scientific result. So anybody who out there who really likes UV22, all power to you. But um, Where do you find that one? I, I'm not that is, with that one. Um, I think it's the one that comes for, by default in Cubase and Nuendo, which I think is why it's kind of fairly common. I'm pretty sure that... But it's uh, not in WaveLab? Uh, it's not by default. No, I don't think it is. I don't think it's even available, actually, interestingly. Okay. Um, okay. Or maybe, no, because I think it's PowR that's available in Logic. And, and that's the one of the plugins in Pro Tools, or was back uh, for as long as I can remember. Yeah, but, and then uh, there are other types. I mean, at the end of yeah. the day, the, the, the key thing for me is that I have always, I mean, I was taught to do this, and I've I carried on doing it. I have always mastered listening through Dither. In fact, listening through 16-bit dither, because I still very much have a, a CD-based mindset. You know, mm -hmm. if somebody wants high-res files, I will adjust the bit depth of the dither at that point. But when I'm actually doing the mastering, I'm thinking, okay, so I listen through a real-time sample rate converter, which is one of the nice things that WaveLab has. And you can add, uh, well, I use the Isotope um, Mbit Plus dither um, mm -hmm. at that point. Oh, okay, so interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, I recommended triangular dither because it's good enough at every other stage. I think actually it's true to say that you shouldn't use any of these fancy types of dither at any stage other than the final master. Um, you know, if you want to do what we were talking about where you're exporting multiple files or bouncing and consolidating, stick with the plain types of dither because all of the kind of the fancy processing stuff that they do could build up. You know, if you have a type of dither that genuinely does make the signal sound more toppy, as you were describing, uh, if you do that kind of five or ten times over the course of a project, you're compounding that sound and you're probably going to end up with something that's not the way that it was intended to be. But taking that one stage further, if you just pick a type of dither and have it in your monitoring chain when you're listening, yeah, let's say it's supplied by the limiter. If you're using Ozone or if you're using the waves, that most limiters will have dither in them. If you enable that dither and you're listening to it, all of your sonic decisions are made 
in the context of whatever effect that dither has. So when you get to the end of the process, don't then suddenly start changing it. Um, this, is what, this is what makes no sense to me, is for, for, a, for an engineer to kind of master a project and then choose the dither, which changes all the decisions they just made, even if it's only very, very slightly, that just seems crazy to me. You know, choose a type of dither that works for you, make your mastering decisions with that dither in place, and you're done. Um, yeah, that's kind of... Assuming that dither makes a difference. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fair Going enough. back to no, that no, skeptic I... thing. No, after I, and I agree after with 20 you episodes, and... I can't possibly argue with you on that point. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I do agree with you on that because what we're what we're listening to, even though we have a 32 or 64 bit mix bus, even though we have 32 bit floating point files, uh, what the monitors are actually receiving is a 24 bit signal because your um, the DAW doesn't actually output a signal that's more than 24 bits. Exactly. Yes. Your hardware outputs will be 24 bits. So monitoring through a dither makes perfect sense. Exactly. Um, and I don't know whether monitoring through a 24-bit dither makes sense. I mean, again, th th this is the question about whether I'm pretty clear that 16-bit dither is audible, but I haven't done the tests in detail with 24, and that's where I start to get sceptical again because it's a whole whatever it is. It's down at minus 144 dBs instead of minus 96, you know. it's However yeah. hard 16-bit dither is to hear whether it's having an effect or not, it's got to be far, far more difficult at 24-bit. So I don't think if you've been working at 24-bit all this time and not dithering, uh, you should lose any sleep over it. Um, I do think you might as well stick 24-bit dither in the chain just to be on the safe side. That's the maximum number of bits you're going to get out of your DAW. Yeah. And that kind of that's a hard limit that's built into everything we do. Yeah, that's, that's not going to change for quite some time. Well, and there's no need for it to change because, you know, the, the theoretical noise floor achieved by... I mean, the thing is, most actual 24-bit converters don't achieve the theoretical performance that they should be able to anyway. Um, I think True. in recent years, we've just been finally seeing some converters that really can deliver genuine 24-bit performance in terms of where the noise floor is. Um, but anything you put into them or play out of them, as we've already said, is going to have way more noise in it than those. So, you know... Even if somebody builds a 32-bit converter, I have no interest in using it um, because I just genuinely don't believe that, that any benefits that it might have will translate to any kind of real-world result. Especially with the loudness war, where we only have a dB of dynamic range. <laughs> Indeed. No, I mean, but it, it is it is a valid point. I mean, there's a, there's a website out there somewhere where you can test for yourself. Um, uh, you can listen to Gangnam Style in 16-bit or in 8-bit. Um, why? Well, because as a <laughs> that, test... That, that song. <laughs> I, I'm with you. Okay, yeah. But it is a great example where most people genuinely can't have a, hear a difference between the 8-bit and yeah. the 16-bit version because it is so loud and it's so processed and it's so full-on the whole time. However, there's another example, uh, which is a Neil Young song, and there I heard it with 100% accuracy. Um, even though... If this is a, I was thought we were going to wrap up, and I forgot we promised to tell people something. This is how you make 8-bit dither sound good, is you apply noise shaping and frequency sculpting to the dither. If you use a noise-shaped, shaped dither at 8 bits, you can actually reduce the audibility of that dither significantly. I forget what the number is. You can either get 
I think you can get 12-bit effective audible noise floor in there. So suddenly you've got an 8-bit signal that sounds way better than what we think 8-bit audio could ever sound like because you can re using these clever techniques, you can reduce that noise floor right down. Um, and that's what they've done on this site. So even the Neil Young example, the 8-bit version sounds better than you might expect. Um, and it's clearly audible to me, but at the end of the day, what you're hearing is hiss, which, you know, it's not the end of the world. So there you go. I think we've probably said far, far too much about I think Dither. I, I think if you've made it through, you've probably learned a few things. I think I learned something as well. Uh, let's get into the mastering maxim. Okay. Please. Let's get into the mastering maxim. <laughs> um, I'm afraid, though, everybody's going to be completely underwhelmed because uh, the mastering maxim is just dither it. You know, that's all there is to it. Use dither, stop worrying about it, stop fretting about all this stuff we've been talking about. Just switch the damn thing on and start thinking about things that actually matter to the music. Um, you know, with the slight complication that I think you should use the, you know, use the dither, as we just said, all the way through the process, listen through it, um, and that you only need to use it right at the end of the chain. Yes. So it wasn't that simple after all, was it? But yeah, it was. No. Yeah, it was. We could yeah. just dither it. So there we go. Uh, John, I want to say thank you so much for agreeing to do this episode on this topic that you hate. Um, and I I really hope that you're not suicidal as a result. Um, it's been great having you on as a co-host. Anybody listening, head over to reaperblog.net. Uh, you're on Twitter as at Audio Geek. Is that the at, Audio Geek? At, at the Audio Geek and at Reaper Blog. And cool. on Facebook, the Reaper Blog. Definitely check out what uh, John is doing. Yeah, he's uh, a very cool guy. Um, he will be mixing and editing this episode poor chap um my heart goes out to you <laughs> knowing the chaos of the last hour which nobody listening will have heard because you'll have edited it so well <laughs> no pressure yeah if this show is not 116 minutes long then uh then you'll know what happened exactly um and as always the music was by kaylee law um he changed his Bandcamp address recently, so anybody who's interested in the music would have clicked through from the website and gone to the wrong place. If you'd like to hear more of his stuff, the link is now fixed. Please head over to themasteringshow.com. You should do that anyway because you should sign up to the newsletter and, well, you just should. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Thanks, John. Really? Yeah, absolutely. That was slick, wasn't it? <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.